Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today's text is an essay written by Black civil rights activist Francis Beale in 1969. It's called Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female. And I have to say, it kind of took my breath away. It answered some questions that I've had for a long time, and it introduced new questions that I didn't know that I needed to ask. And it gave me a lot to think about that I've been thinking about ever since I read it. And I'm really, really excited and really, really grateful to have Raina McKay back on the show to discuss this text with me. Hi, Raina. Hi, Amy. I'm so excited to be back. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much. Now to turn our attention to the text, this author has been really significant to me in my personal life. Um, Even though, as I said, I'd never read this text before. I knew who Frances Beale was because of a class that I took on the civil rights movement last year in Mm -hmm. grad school. And if I I wanted to maybe just give a little bit of historical context that I've read, just because I'm working on my thesis on on this very topic right now. Any moment that I'm not taking care of my family, I'm working on the podcast. And in between, in the cracks, I'm working on my thesis (laughs) still. So, Um, but I, yeah, I'm I'm writing on um, women's relationships with each other in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was called SNCC. And when I wrote this. you know, my final paper for the civil rights class, I featured quotes by Frances Beale extensively because she was in that that movement. And so when I approached this text, Double Jeopardy, to be black and female, I was like, oh, I've I know Frances Beale. And but this text was so different from what I had studied um, in SNCC. It was different from things she had said when she was younger. And so I just want to just give a little bit of historical context because there was a big historical shift that happened. So in this class that we took, in the civil rights class, we read like a giant volume of of the works of Dr. King. And then we read about SNCC. So that's, mm-hmm. again, the Student Nonviolent yep. Coordinating Committee, SNCC, see. for listeners yep. who can't see the acronym. And, and SNCC was started by um, a man named Bob Moses and Diane Nash and Ella Baker and Jim Foreman, lots of people that you, you could look up if you're interested for, for listeners. But these were, SNCC was started by nonviolent, peaceful people who are trained in nonviolent, peaceful protest and the the Christian values of turning turning the other cheek. And they had used these strategies in civil disobedience and integrating lunch counters. They were doing the freedom rides in 1964, integrating the interstate buses. They then worked in rural Mississippi, starting schools and registering African-Americans to vote, many of whom had really been so oppressed and so suppressed that they didn't even know that Black people had the right to vote. Raina, you know all of this, but this is just an education for listeners. And it was an education for me. I had never done a deep dive into the civil rights movement and, and known all of these different points of development. But this movement, I mean, especially in rural Mississippi in the early 60s, it was incredibly dangerous work. And reading about men and women who were you know, when you think of like, oh, they were so brave, they went to jail for what they did. They were beaten 
with yeah. almost sometimes to death, but sometimes women were beaten savagely in jail for, for of, nonviolent protests. Yeah, a lot of these pictures or a lot of these incidences with SNCC are the pictures that um, tend to be repeated over and over and over again. You know what I mean? When mm-hmm. you see the black and white pictures of um, mm-hmm. the civil rights protests, a lot of these are the SNCC workers, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. These young men and women just reading about their, you know, their accounts in their journals. It was, it's so it's moving. I mean, I just, you will just ball your eyes out reading about it. Cause they, they would just, it, it, and it's in the same vein as Dr. King just saying, stand tall and proud and don't move, but don't fight back. And they called themselves the beloved community, which is Christian language talking about harmony and, e- and equality but then really kind of a tragic schism developed between the women by about 1965. And this is when Francis Beale is writing yeah. where there was this schism that happened. Anyway, I guess just back to just one yeah. more thing from this historical timeline to set up Francis Beale is that uh, SNCC, which had, as we talked about, SNCC had started out being very egalitarian racially and mm-hmm. gender wise too, made a shift toward Black power. And in fact, it it was the president of SNCC at the time, Stokely Carmichael, who was the first person to raise his fist at a Mm -hmm. rally and start chanting Black power, which became the rallying cry. And so that took SNCC in a different direction. Yes, it did. And so this essay is a really important um, historical piece in understanding what was on these you know, these people's minds, it was a group of black civil rights workers, what they were thinking and feeling at the time at the end of the 60s. Okay, so let's um, get to know Frances Beale specifically a little bit. So Raina, could you take us into her bio and just introduce us to this author? Sure. She was born in 1940 in Binghamton, New York. Um, Her mother was a Russian Jewish immigrant and her father was African American and Native American. Um, Her parents were political activists. Um, She describes her upbringing as difficult, but acknowledges that it impacted her political consciousness. Her mother taught her uh, that she had a personal and political social responsibility to confront equality, inequalities that she and others were subject to. Uh, during college, she went to France, where she married James Beale, and they had two children. Uh, she attended my dream dream, dream university of the Sorbonne. Mm -hmm. And uh, during her time there, she was aware of the fight and France's colonial domination in Algeria. After six years in France, um, Francis and James returned to the States and um, they were divorced. She afterwards joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the 1960s. Um, During her time there, um, SNCC activity shifted away from its original egalitarianism, as we talked about, toward a male dominated black power movement. She and her female colleagues worked in and contributed enormously to the civil rights movement, but sometimes were not given the leadership positions that their work warranted. So in response, she co-founded the Black Women's Liberation Committee of SNCC in 1968, which then evolved into the Third World Women's Alliance. Looking back, uh, Beale aired her grievances in the film, She's Beautiful When She's Angry. She stated, and I quote, 
I was in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You're talking about liberation and freedom half the night on the racial side. And then all of a sudden, men are going to turn around and start talking about putting you in your place. So in 1968, we founded the SNCC Black Women's Liberation Committee to take up some of these issues, unquote. Uh, during the late 1960s, Beale also became aware of the practice of forced sterilization, and she was actively involved in the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse, which is called the CESA. This organization fought to help poor women of color who were being disproportionately targeted and coerced into involuntary sterilization. She actively worked to empower Black women through her political involvement in organizations and positions held on committees. Also in 1968, she composed an essay that addressed the complex relationships um, that Black women were facing in their collective Black struggle called, quote, double jeopardy to be Black and female, unquote. This document became SNCC's official stance on women. Through her organizing, Beale confronted a range of oppressive regimes that encompassed uh, complex power relationships um, that subordinated and disenfranchised Black women. Her political organizing sought to address structural inequalities and also to empower marginalized groups. Great. Thanks, Raina. Okay, so let's take a look at Beale's essay, Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female. I chose the first quote, which is right from the beginning of the essay. So I'll just dive in. Here's Beale. She says, quote, in attempting to analyze the situation of the black woman in America, one crashes abruptly into a solid wall of grave misconceptions, outright distortions of fact, and defensive attitudes on the part of many. The system of capitalism and its afterbirth, racism, under which we all live, has attempted by many devious ways and means to destroy the humanity of all people, and particularly the humanity of black people. This has meant an outrageous assault on every black man, woman, and child who resides in the United States. In keeping with its goal of destroying the black race's will to resist its subjugation, capitalism found it necessary to create a situation where the black man found it impossible to find meaningful or productive employment. More often than not, he couldn't find work of any kind. And the black woman, likewise, was manipulated by the system, economically exploited, and physically assaulted. She could often find work in the white man's kitchen, however, and sometimes became the sole breadwinner of the family. This predicament has led to many psychological problems on the part of both man and woman, and has contributed to the turmoil that we find in the black family structure. End quote. Um... There's a lot that it's we could unpack there. Huh? And we will. Let's get to some of it. But the first question I wanted to ask is if you could just share a little bit of your lived experience in this, what, what Beale calls the double jeopardy of being Black and female in the United States. What? How does that strike you, Raina? You know, in medicine, I feel like I, like, basically my entire, like, medical career can be summed up in either I'm either housekeeping or I'm like mm. Miranda Bailey from Grey's Anatomy. And it mm. seems like I'm put into one of two categories or tropes, you know, and mm. there's not much for anything else. I remember um, once when I was on a rotation, this was when I was an intern. Um, so I was in training and um, I spoke up 
during ICU rounds. My attending um, was talking about something about the patient. It was something about one of their lab values or something. I cannot even remember now exactly what it was. But I said, um, I was like, well, excuse me, sir. I'm like, but that's not correct. This is what the lab values were or whatever it was or the testing or you know what I mean. But I just said, this is what they were. And, you Mm -hmm. know, white male turns to me and he basically said, oh, the monkey thinks she can teach the professor something. No. No, Raina, are you? And I, like, if I could go white. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Right? (laughs) But I literally blanched. And I, 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 I could not say anything. I was like, what? And there were, remember, a dozen people at least standing there. And a couple of people, one other person looked aghast. A couple of people didn't even notice what he had said or pretended they didn't notice. A couple of people looked down at their feet really quickly. But nobody said anything. Nobody corrected him. Nobody said, excuse me. Nobody, you know what I mean? And it is those moments that you realize truly how alone you are. And what was crazy is he may have been derisive to one of my white colleagues, like who was in my same position, but he would have never used a blatantly racist slur. No, I can't believe he said that. You know? And what made it even worse was not just him. But when I went to my residency director, who is the person who is supposed to be the advocate for the residents, right? Um, I went to my residency director. I said, this is what happened. He at first said that couldn't have happened. You heard him wrong. I said, it absolutely happened. <laughs> like and you're lying? Right. Like, like I'm you're lying. making it right. up? I was totally. Yeah. I just <sighs> make that up. Right. I take one of, and this was our chief vascular surgeon at that time. So I would just decide to take on the chief vascular surgeon just for the fun of it. Yeah, I don't think so. Like, I literally didn't want that man to know I existed. Right. Mm. But I spoke Mm. up because that was my job to do on that team. Right. Mm -hmm. And because we were making decisions for this patient. And if we made a wrong decision based on wrong information. Right. On a critically ill patient. One, that's a domino effect that's not okay. But two, me being self-protective knew that would come back on me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because right. I was the lowest um, physician at that point in time on the totem pole. And right. so my residents- But what if you had been rude? What if you had been, what if you yeah. had spoken out of turn yeah. and done something totally unprofessional? Then what? So then he's allowed to call you a racist slur? I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just like yeah. enraged. Yeah. I I'm yeah. uh, there's no circumstance in which that's okay for him to do. And again, like ever, 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 ever. Raina, I'm ever, but my, uh, my professor, my residency director first didn't believe me. Then of course said, well, if you can find somebody else who can corroborate the story. Oh my so gosh. I went back to the one person who 
was absolutely aghast. And that was one of our incredible ICU nurses. Um, she was a white female in probably her 50s, which mm-hmm. I was in the South. So just so you know, that was great to have an advocate like that, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? And she was like, that was absolutely unacceptable. I can't believe he did that. You know what I mean? Like all of the things, the appropriate response you would. And I said, well, would you be willing to tell our residency director? She said, of course I will. Um, she sent him an email. She said, this is what happened. This is the date. This is the time. She was she was so good. You got to love a good. critical care nurse, you know, because they yeah. know how to document, right? <laughs> and so yeah. she listed, I saw, she CC'd me on that email and she literally listed every person who heard it. Good. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? She called yeah. them all out. <laughs> right? <Good. laughs> yeah, that's good. And so finally, after all of that, my residency director said, okay, well, I believe you now, I guess. I guess this is what happened. But, you know, what I just want you to do is I want you to just lay low. <sighs> wow. So, so he, no. Nope. No nope. consequences for the person who said it. Nope. nope. And, and he you also, had to be yep. the one to lay low. You yep. had to diminish yourself and make right. yourself. Right smaller so that nobody would be uncomfortable with what he did to you. you. Yeah. And he also implied that, you know, if I didn't lay low, remember, he basically said, remember, this is the guy who gives you your grade for this rotation. Oh, my gosh. This is horrifying. So. Yeah. What was I supposed to do, right? And that's how these. That's yeah. how the power dynamics just stay Continue the way they are. And yes. Right. Yeah. Never change. They never, ever change. So where were we at, Amy? I think we are on another quote from the text. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So getting back into the text, I would say that one of the main things that I took away from this essay, like as a whole, was a new understanding of the link between sexism, racism, and capitalism. Because uh, kind of up until now, up until doing this project, I hadn't read very much feminist academic writing from the 1960s and 70s and afterward. And now that I'm reading a bunch of those texts, I'm seeing that those three systems are are really often linked, right? Mm-hmm. Um Authors will write about like, yeah, about racism, sexism and capitalism. And I feel like coming into this, I feel like, yeah, I, I understand sexism. That's why I'm doing this project. And <laughs> and I I mean, like, I, I get it. And then I, I understood racism. And and at first, actually, I didn't even really understand how racism and sexism were linked. But I'm definitely learning that the more I'm doing this project. But I still wasn't really understanding, like when they would get to capitalism, I'd be like, Okay, like why does how does that interlock with racism and sexism? And we talked about this a little bit on the episode um, on the real wealth of nations by Rianne Eisler, and that helped me to get a better idea of the economics angle a little bit. But mm-hmm. something from um, this essay by Frances Beale really, really struck me. So that's the next quote I'm going to read. Um, she says in this in this essay, she says that the afterbirth of capitalism is racism. Yep. And that I was like, okay, how uh-huh. so capitalism came first and that, that racism came afterwards and I was like kind of like processing that like well how did that work? And so she says capitalism quote found it necessary to create a situation where the black man found it impossible to find meaningful or productive employment. 
More often than not, he couldn't find work of any kind. And the Black woman, likewise, was manipulated by the system, economically exploited and physically assaulted. End quote. And when I read that passage, it just suddenly clicked for me. Um, I just kind of had the whole historical timeline of um, Black people in America from the the 1600s. And I, I just thought, oh, my gosh, it's because capitalism relies on a person having Capital, right? Yep. I mean, so having if, if you want to get ahead in life, you have to have some sort of seed of like wealth or assets. That's what capital mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And so then the the person kind of capitalizes on that money and, and tries to grow it and uh, as big as they can. Right. And mm-hmm. so in capitalism, basically everybody takes what they have and makes the most of it. And it's kind of survival of the fittest. Right. Absolutely. And so so then I was thinking about white European and American men from the 1500s on to the 1800s. And it just hit me. I was like, oh my gosh, some of these men figured out that they could get more capital by kidnapping and enslaving human beings. And they going to the African continent and, and selling these human beings as slaves to increase their own profit. Yep. And, and part then of the, the reason then, why they raped the black women was to create more free labor. Yes. I think that's a point we always have to remember. So just to to put it in that context of like these people were keeping a, a huge profit margin because they weren't paying for labor. <laughs> they built the economy, the entire economy of the American South, arguably yep. the North as well. Yep, absolutely. And many other countries through this egregious yep. exploitation of, of human beings. Mm-hmm. And that was the that's part of the capital. And yep. and so then to see Beale say like and then black men couldn't get jobs and black women could and so just to see like that system didn't just vanish with the 13th amendment once there was, you know, technically emancipation, but there was sharecropping and then there there was reconstruction and the the once you know, black people were technically free, they still were not given access to the capital that existed in the world. And so right. through systemic racism, they're still kept from getting equal access to capital. And so for me, that was like, oh my gosh, that's how capitalism in the first place bred more racism. Mm-hmm. And that's how they are interlocking as systems of oppression in this country. It's it's so true. And it continues today in most of our professional institutions. It even continues in medicine. The highest paid specialties are reserved for white physicians. That's not a coincidence. The money and or the capital is reserved for white physicians. So did you, so out of all the anesthesiologists in the United States, only 3% are black and only one point one and a half percent, one point five percent, whatever, are black females. Um, so wow. while black people are thirteen percent of our US population, only two percent of all doctors total are black and female. Wow. 
But interestingly enough, female physicians make up over half of the OBs, pediatricians, and family practice doctors in the United States. Oh, really? Uh So white women. White women. And this is also where our black physicians and our minority physicians are um, highly represented, especially our immigrant population makes up the other um, the other majority of um, our primary care specialties. Sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. So once again, we have women. And minorities doing the quote-unquote work of medicine without the same compensation. Right. And then, and it's just, and then it snowballs, right? Because right. every year mm-hmm. that your income is lower, yep. that's that's a smaller seed money that's in the bank making more money. And right. that's right. more money makes more money, money. right? And yeah. so that capital just, it. so the wealth, and you know, we've the all read- gap. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's how it keeps perpetuating that yep. you don't pass down, yep. you know, they. Uh, and yeah. then we have society who tells us, oh, but you have access. You're making money. I don't see why you're upset about this. You just need to do the same things your white colleagues are. I mean, they don't say that, but that's what they're saying. Right. But then you're like, but I have a smaller seed money. I have I do. I have a higher debt into income ratio. Uh, that right. means a lower credit score, which does not allow me. You know what I mean? Like it just perpetuates right. and perpetuates and perpetuates. It's just a more palatable version of slavery. Yeah. Oh. Well, that that actually, there was one more quote by Beale that kind of develops this same mm-hmm. thing. So she, Beale says, quote, Women also represent a surplus labor supply, the control of which is absolutely necessary to the profitable functioning of capitalism. I have to pause there to because that reminds me of, you know, the the very first episodes we did on this podcast about how in the agricultural revolution men began to control women because they realized if they owned and controlled women's yep. reproductive capacity that have yep. a bigger labor force, which yep. is what you just referred to specifically in, yep. in slavery. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, so they would have, anyway. Okay, mm-hmm. so Beale continues. She says, quote, women are paid less for the same work that men do. And jobs that are specifically relegated to women are low paying and without the possibility of advancement. Statistics from the Women's Bureau of the U.S. Department of Labor showed that the wage scale for white women was even below that of black men, and the wage scale for non-white women was the lowest of all. And this is, of course, being written in the um, in 1969. But um, so I looked up the data right now mm-hmm. on LeanIn.org, mm-hmm. and f- currently, for every dollar a white man makes. A white woman makes 79 cents and a black woman makes 62 cents. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So it is. And and I also read some data. It really has not changed very much since Beale was writing. No, 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 no. The percentage hasn't changed. Just the Mm -hmm. um, or the yeah, the percentage ratio hasn't changed. The ratio. The ratio hasn't changed. It's really interesting. So this is neither. This is for male versus female. I don't know the statistics for what a black female physician makes compared to a white Mm -hmm. male physician. But the median salary for male physicians is $86,000 more than females across the board. Goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There is so far to go then. I (laughs) mean, people. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Oof. That's huge. Now, huge. People are going to try to explain it away by saying, well, a female's a pediatrician and this male's a neurosurgeon. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, but but not okay. 
You know what right, I mean? Right, not okay. Yeah. Yes. And what you were describing, <laughs> right. that's why that, I mean, mm-hmm. that story that you told earlier is so yep. powerful. If people are being funneled into certain Absolutely. fields of medicine that that they're used to like, oh, well, well, you know, a black physician is going to want to do this job and right. a woman is going to want to do this, do this job. job. A black woman is going to want to do this job. Right. Then, uh, then that doesn't. And there is a historically a male uh, preference for males in medicine because people, once again, society historically thinks that males are more um, reliable. Does that make sense? Because uh, sure. once again, men like to control women's reproduction and what right. women are going to do once they decide to reproduce, if they decide to reproduce. Um, right. I will say I am not that our male physicians aren't wonderful. Like I have a fantastic group of colleagues, so I don't want to um, portray that at all. But I am so proud of the fact that um, just being a female leader, I have made things like breastfeeding breaks normal in my group Mm, and they were not before and i am fighting to get an actual breastfeeding room in the hospital which by the way it's legally required to do so but you know there's a lot of loopholes that people can say well there's a room available okay that Mm. people walk in and out of and that people go to the bathroom in and you know what i mean but whatever we don't need to talk about that but i have made my office like it's the breastfeeding room like there's a little sign now and it just says meeting in progress and so my private office becomes because i have a lot of young females who work for me who are wonderful and they're all expanding their families if they choose to do so. And I'm like, they need to have a clean, quiet, locked place to be able to do what they need to do. Right. And so my office has a little sign that they just go in whenever they need to. And then they flip the thing and it's meeting in progress. And I have a larger office that we all are in, you know, that I just move out of. Or sometimes I even do my work just sitting in there talking with them. You know what I mean? But at least like I I am proud of that in that um, in what we're trying to do to change the narrative. But it is truly and we do not have time to talk about this in this podcast, maybe another one. But like you said, men have been in charge of women and in charge of their reproduction and women get penalized for actually doing what men are demanding us to do. Mm hmm. Well, that's a great way to wrap up this episode, Raina. That's those are amazing stories. Thank you so much for sharing. Those are such powerful points. And I'm so grateful that you are here with us today. Thank you so much. I've loved being here. Seriously. I could do this any day with you. <laughs>